Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder, abuse, and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Cults. Today we're going to be taking a deep look at one of the most infamous cults in Canadian history, the Ant Hill Kids. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Hi, everyone. In part one of our two-part series on the Ant Hill Kids, we'll focus on the Ant Hill Kids' notorious leader, Roque Theriot, known to his followers as Moses. He transformed from a French-Canadian Catholic boy who loved to read to a Seventh-day Adventist convert and finally to a brutal cult leader. His horrific crimes included sexually abusing, castrating, torturing, mutilating, and murdering his followers, and their young children. In part two, we'll learn more about the Ant Hill kids themselves. Who were these young men and women who joined Roke's cult? And why did they stay after his prophecy of doomsday failed to come true? Why did they stay after Roke tortured and killed their babies? And why did they stay after Roke killed one of his own followers, ejaculated into her skull, and wore her rib as a necklace? When you think of a stereotypical Canadian, what comes to mind? Welcoming. Apologetic. And overall nice. Even Canadians themselves play into this national stereotype. In April of 2017, Roots Canada launched a powerful ad campaign celebrating Canada's past 150 years of being nice. Roque Theriot was one Canadian who fooled many into thinking he was nice. But beneath his affable persona lurked a sadistic monster. Roque Terrio initially collected his followers under the guise of Seventh-day Adventism, but he soon created a religion of his own. On July 6th of 1978, Roque announced to his followers that the end of the world would occur on February 17th of 1979. Luckily, God had chosen Roque to be his prophet. Roque renamed himself Moses and led his followers into the wilderness, where they could restart civilization and bring about an era of peace. But instead of an era of peace, the cult's stint in the wilderness would lead to an era of starvation, torture, mutilation, and the death of a young boy. After a brief period of incarceration for the young boy's death, Roque led his followers into the wilderness once again in May of 1984. They seemed like a happy commune of peace-loving hippie types with a successful fruit stand and bakery company called the Ant Hill Kids. But in reality, 
Roque's horrific treatment of his followers only escalated, leading to child abuse, torture, castration, murder, and dismemberment. It would take police over a decade to finally bring him to justice. Decades before Roque brutalized and slaughtered the members of his own cult, Roque himself apparently had it rough as a child. As an adult, he told the women who loved him horrifying stories of his parents' physical abuse. Roque told Giselle, one of his wives, that his father badly injured him by punching him in the stomach. Roque also claimed that his father pushed him down the stairs somewhere between the ages of 9 or 12, which resulted in him getting stomach ulcers. Roque even used this alleged abuse as an excuse for his actions in a letter to the sister of his murder victim. He wrote in part, quote, I am from a family in which I was mistreated and beaten worse than a dog, from the age of two until 14, when my father, having beaten me, threw me out of the house and told me never to set foot in it again, end quote. It makes for a harrowing tale. I can see why people might be willing to forgive some of the horrible things Roque did if he had that kind of a childhood. That's what the men and women who followed Roque, and even many of the psychiatrists who analyzed him, also believed, that he deserved forgiveness after overcoming such a terrible childhood. There's only one problem. Just about everything Roque wrote about his childhood is a lie. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here. Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for this show. Vanessa, what do you make of Roke's behavior? What did he have to gain by making up such atrocious lies about his own family? Well, Roke used his alleged history of childhood abuse as a way of excusing his own horrendous abuse of his followers. And in doing so, he was using a psychological tactic commonly employed by abusers called victim playing. Victim playing is an insidious manipulation technique. By playing the victim, Roque could avoid taking the blame for beating up, torturing, or even murdering his followers. It wasn't his fault because all of his behavior stemmed from his own abuse as a child at the hands of his parents. He was the real victim. So Roque's victim playing let him victimize others. Exactly. Roque's victim playing and manipulation of his childhood narrative fits with his diagnosis and with his father's description of his manipulative behavior as a child. But did this victim playing tactic really convince people that he shouldn't be held responsible for torturing people or murdering them? Mm. Roque's victim playing worked like a charm, and he didn't just use it to manipulate his followers and keep them from leaving him. He was able to successfully trick multiple prominent psychologists into pitying him and forgiving his terrible actions. And this wasn't the only lie that Roque told about his childhood in order to manipulate others. As an adult, he wrote a rambling memoir where he waxed poetic about his connection to nature as a child. After he was arrested for murder in 1989, he claimed to Dr. Malcolm, a top Torontonian psychologist, that at age six, he'd spent a day peacefully frolicking with a mother bear and her two cubs. He also claimed he was paralyzed from ages six to eight. He further claimed that in 1954, at approximately age seven, he had a vision where he was playing St. Joseph in a theatrical production. Then he actually received the role a year later. This somehow led to his alleged knowledge of medicine and his ability to mend broken arms and legs. None of this sounds even remotely true, which is probably why Dr. Malcolm described Roke's lies as myth-making. Child abuse may have at least been believable to gullible strangers who didn't know Roke's parents, but why would Roke make up obviously false legends about his childhood? 
Well, by creating these myths, Roque was using a tactic common among cult leaders known as mystical manipulation. In other words, he was reinventing his own story as a way of proving his spiritual superiority over regular humans. Mm. Despite Roque's stories as an adult that he suffered from child abuse and that he was friends with woodland creatures, Roque's actual childhood was quite normal, according to his family and childhood friends. Roque wasn't kicked out of his house when he was 14. He continued to live happily at home. As an adult, Roque frequently depicted his father as a violent alcoholic. But neighbors and friends don't remember Hyacinth Terrio as a drunkard. Hyacinth also denied physically abusing Roque. He is quoted as saying, I never beat the boy, but I punished him when he needed it. And Hyacinth had good reason to discipline Roque. His son was a manipulative and incorrigible liar who refused to accept responsibility for his actions. Whenever Hyacinth caught Roke stealing or smoking, Roke always had an excuse for why one of his other siblings was really at fault. Now, I, of course, can't diagnose Roke, but there are some similarities here in Roke's behavior as a child to the mannerisms of children diagnosed with callous and unemotional traits. As a quick reminder for our listeners, Callous and unemotional children tend to lack empathy and are willing to use violence to get what they want. Well, do you think Roke was a callous and unemotional child? Well, it's hard to say. He was certainly manipulative. But although Roke liked to roughhouse with other boys on the playground, his teachers don't remember him as violent or a bully. Do you think there's any truth to Roke's claims about his parents abusing him? Well, we can't know for sure whether any of Hyacinth's punishments were physical. It certainly wouldn't be surprising if Roke got spanked every once in a while, considering that corporal punishment for misbehaving children was considered normal in the 1950s. Dr. Malcolm, the psychiatrist who noticed Roke's propensity for myth-making, also noticed that Roke displayed symptoms which today's psychologists might label as narcissistic personality disorder. We've all heard of narcissists in popular culture, but what does it mean if someone is clinically diagnosed with narcissistic personality? Well, generally, being self-centered isn't enough to qualify as having narcissistic personality disorder. A true narcissist has delusions of grandeur and thinks they're destined for greatness. They expect everyone to recognize their superiority and can't tolerate even the slightest criticism. But while they desperately need everyone around them to adore them and boost their self-esteem, Narcissists have very little empathy for others. So what was Roke's real childhood like? Well, when Roke was six, the family uprooted and moved to a mining town, appropriately named Thetford Mines. Roke liked to spend time reading books and often took them home from school to read. His teachers found him to be intelligent and creative and diligent. But his parents were poor working class people who found their son's intellectual curiosity a bit strange. Normally, it's wonderful when children develop a love of reading, but I can't help but wonder if Roke's passion for books hinted at his narcissistic personality. How so? Well, Roke liked to feel superior to others around him, and reading would have fueled his belief that he knew more than everyone else in his poor working-class family. None of Roke's neighbors remember any of Roke's siblings continuing their education past eighth grade. Roke even learned how to speak English, another way of showing he was smarter and more knowledgeable than the rest of his French-speaking family. The only thing that didn't help Roke's self-esteem was when his father, Hyacinth, forced him to participate in his religious and political activism. Hyacinth made his children wear white berets and march with him in military fashion as they went door to door and begged on their knees for donations from the neighbors for the white berets. What are the White Berets? The White Berets are officially known in English as Pilgrims of St. Michael. 
They were named White Berets for those distinctive White Berets members wore while handing out their leaflets. White Berets propagate a combination of conservative Catholic beliefs with the labor philosophy known as social credit. Well, what's social credit? Well, social credit refers to the belief that wealth should be redistributed from big banks and corporations to ordinary people. This sounds an awful lot like socialism. Socialism actually encompasses a wide range of economic and social beliefs about how wealth should be shared and distributed. But suffice it to say, proponents of social credit don't believe themselves to be socialists, since they still believe in private property and privately run companies. The leaders of the White Berets held militaristic rallies and had their followers march around like they were members of an army. Roque's forced membership in the White Berets had a profound effect on him. Roque's friends made fun of him for wearing that white beret and marching around, a crushing blow to his precarious sense of self-esteem. Remember, despite their inflated sense of self, narcissists are obsessed with gaining the approval of others. They can't stand being teased. Roque grew to loathe the white berets. And because the white berets were connected to Catholicism, Roque grew to hate Catholicism as well. He knew his neighbors and friends looked down on and laughed at his family's white berets' activities. Roque couldn't stand the disapproval of others. He couldn't handle being humiliated. And he especially didn't like following orders. Since he associated rule following and his friends teasing with Catholicism, it's no wonder that he ended up hating his family's religion as well as the White Berets. And in many ways, it was Roque's quest for a new religion that would lead him down the path of becoming a notorious cult leader. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. And now, let's continue our story. Aside from his family's unusual political activities, Roque Terrio seemed to have a relatively normal 1950s childhood. His parents believed in strict discipline and obedience. But friends of the Terrio siblings recall Roque's parents as a stern but loving couple who doted on each other. Not only did Roque have a happy home life, he also excelled in school. His test scores were in the 90s. As a 13-year-old, he came in either first or second place in his seventh grade final exams. His teachers believed he was heading towards a bright future. Instead, the formerly hardworking 13-year-old dropped out of school after eighth grade, shocking and disappointing his teachers. Vanessa, why would someone like Roke, a boy with top grades who loved books, drop out of school? Well, it's hard to know for sure. He may have dropped out due to a lack of encouragement for higher education at home. His older sister also dropped out of school by the end of eighth grade, and none of Roke's younger siblings received more than an eighth grade education either. Roke may have also decided that he couldn't stand obeying the school's rules anymore. Or possibly Roke convinced himself that he was smarter than his teachers, and he already knew more than them. Roke generally already thought he was smarter than everyone anyway. After leaving school in 1961, Roke began mowing lawns for pocket money and spending his time at dance halls. Roke soon found a new way to boost his self-esteem, a new way to gain approval that didn't require studying hard or earning good grades. Roke's novel way of proving his superiority was by attracting women. He would later write, 
Since my childhood, I have always believed I was different, not your average Joe. This was not only a mental impression, but also an anatomical one. Roque now believed his large penis and sexual prowess was what made him special. And with his intense blue eyes, his charismatic demeanor, and his ability to pontificate on a wide variety of subjects gleaned from all that childhood reading, Roque was able to attract a lot of women in his small mining town. Roque's innate intelligence and charisma allowed him to ensnare almost any woman he wanted. This dangerous talent for attracting others would soon enable him to become one of the most infamous cult leaders in North American history. Roke spent his teenage years dating a lot of different women he met in his town's dance halls. But it wasn't long before he met the woman he wanted to marry. In November of 1967, 20-year-old Roke married 17-year-old Francine Grenier at St. Joseph de Coleraine Church. The pair got along great at first. They lived for a time in a house Roke built himself about a half mile from his parents' home. More evidence that Roke was lying about his childhood. Why would he build a house so close to his parents if they had thrown him out of their home? True. Although Roke and Francine didn't stay at the house for long, they soon moved to Montreal. Roke and Francine had a good life together. Roke had a job as a chimney inspector. He liked to drink, but he was a happy drunk, joking around and pulling pranks. On January 10th of 1969, the couple welcomed their first son, Roque Sylvain Jr. Francine gave birth to their second son, Francois, in April of 1971. But it was during Francine's pregnancy with Francois that she saw her husband begin to undergo a profound shift in personality. It all started in 1971, when Roque complained of suffering from acute stomach pain. When he went to the hospital, doctors informed him that he suffered from duodenal ulcers. He needed surgery fast. But can't ulcers be treated with medication? Nowadays, doctors are more likely to recommend medication than surgery to treat ulcers. But back in 1971, elective ulcer surgery was far more common. So in the spring and fall of 1971, Roque underwent two different surgeries during which doctors removed a large portion of his stomach. Did the surgeries work? Unfortunately, the surgeries didn't go so well for Roque. After his second operation in the fall of 1971, Roque spent months vomiting. Racked with unbearable stomach pain, he finally went back to see his surgeon in January of 1972, who explained that Roque was suffering from dumping syndrome. Well, that sounds bad. It is. People with dumping syndrome can't digest food properly. Food moves from the stomach to the small intestine before the body has time to properly absorb the food's nutrients. These days, the condition often occurs in patients who undergo gastric bypass surgery. Dumping syndrome afflicts three out of every 20 patients who've had part of their stomach organ removed during surgery. Sounds serious. It can be. With current technology, doctors can help patients come up with a diet that meets all their nutritional needs while minimizing their symptoms. But patients who don't stick to their specialized diet can suffer from horrible symptoms, which include weariness, vomiting, and stomach pain. Roque took antacids in an attempt to treat his condition, but the terrible pain in his stomach never went away. And it wasn't only Roque's physical health that deteriorated in 1971. Mm -hmm. As Roque lived with the chronic pain of his churning stomach, his mental health rapidly disintegrated. He changed from a fun, happy-go-lucky man into a man consumed by pain and dark obsessions. His love of reading transformed into an obsession with medical textbooks. He read everything he could about his procedures. And after he developed dumping syndrome in late 1971, his preoccupation with medicine only increased. 
Everyone around Roke noticed a startling change for the worse in his personality. It was like he had become a different person after his surgery. It's not surprising that Roke's surgery and incurable pain worked such a major change on his personality. People with chronic conditions run a much higher risk of developing mood disorders like anxiety and depression. That makes sense. It can't be easy to feel happy if you're sick or in pain all the time. Exactly. One study showed that while 4 to 8% of average healthy people are depressed, 20 to 25% of people with chronic illnesses like arthritis suffer from mood disorders like depression and anxiety. As if having arthritis isn't bad enough, it must be really difficult for people to cope with the long-term illness and the anxiety and depression that the illness triggers. It's a real struggle, and the more serious the diagnosis, the more difficult it becomes for people to cope. In the case of people who have to be hospitalized for illnesses like cancer, over 30% of those patients suffer from depression. Do you think Roke was one of those people whose chronic pain led to mental illness? It certainly seemed that way to everyone who knew Roke. His wife, Francine, later cited the surgery as the turning point in their marriage. Roke went from being a loving husband who doted on his sons to a man who only cared about himself. So maybe Roke's stomach illness didn't just make him anxious or depressed. Maybe it triggered the development of his narcissistic personality. Maybe, but it's also possible that Roke's dumping syndrome merely exacerbated a pre-existing mental illness. Doctors have noticed that chronic illnesses can cause already mental ill people to unravel. Roke definitely unraveled. He could no longer handle his job as a chimney inspector, so he quit. He made his family give up their happy life in Montreal and move back to his childhood hometown of Thetford Mines. Roke couldn't stop complaining about his stomach surgery. He told people that his insides were now plastic and he was going to die soon. Plastic? What a strange thing for him to say. Roke's condition was unpleasant and chronic, but it certainly wasn't fatal. Why would he tell everyone that his insides were plastic or, or that he was dying? Well, in addition to his other mood disorders, Roke could have been suffering from hypochondria. Hypochondria is an anxiety disorder where sufferers convince themselves that they suffer from a severe or fatal illness, and their worrying intrudes into their everyday life. But wouldn't going to a doctor solve this? The doctor could just reassure them that they're fine. Unfortunately, hypochondriacs often can't accept a doctor's clean bill of health. They believe the doctor must be somehow mistaken. And it's important to note that hypochondria can often coexist alongside other mental disorders. So Roke could have been a hypochondriac and a narcissist. Exactly. Mm. And it wasn't just Roke's friends in Montreal or his wife who saw something was off with the young man. Even after Roke moved back home to Thetford Mines, everyone noticed that he seemed to have a screw loose. Before the surgery, Roke used to insist his wife Francine wear long dresses because he didn't want other men looking at her. But after the stomach surgery, Roke suddenly wanted his wife to wear short skirts and show off her legs. Roke's insistence that his wife wear long dresses indicates that Roke was possessive and jealous, qualities found in many men who become psychologically or physically abusive. His sudden about-face where he wanted Francine to wear short skirts indicates a disturbing change in personality. And Roke's newfound interest in sexuality wasn't limited to his wife's hem length. He talked non-stop about sex and began seriously contemplating starting a nudist colony. Yet more evidence that the surgery and subsequent pain mentally destabilized Roke. Indeed. Initially, when the family first moved back to Thetford Mines in the early 1970s after Roke's surgery, Roke still managed to eke out a living. He got his parents' permission to start a wood shop on their land. 
Remember, these are the same parents Roque would later claim abused him and kicked him out of his house. Yet they let him start a business on their property. And the business worked out well initially. Roque cut down trees to make furniture and beer mugs, but he couldn't maintain the business and ran it into the ground. Then, in 1975, with his mug business failing, Roque abruptly became interested in politics. In December of 1975, he won a seat on the city council. And while Roque was initially able to charm council members with the knowledge he gleaned from memorizing the municipal code book, Roque's mental instability soon got the better of him. Roque was full of grand ideas, but he had no willingness to actually figure out how to pay for any of the new playgrounds or roads or houses he wanted built. The other council members couldn't stand him. He threw temper tantrums and refused to compromise. He abruptly stopped showing up to council meetings in May of 1976, and his colleagues happily voted him off the board. Roque's mental instability clearly kept him from performing his council member duties. At this point, Roque's family was on welfare. Francine began to suspect that Roque's trips to ostensibly sell his hand-carved mugs were just a cover for Roque to cheat on her. But Roque was more concerned with his own physical well-being than his family. He became convinced that his stomach medications were affecting his sex life and his ability to meet and attract young women. And at this point, his sexual prowess seemed to be the only thing that mattered to him. So he stopped taking his medication, despite his doctor's orders. But if he wasn't taking antacids, how was he dealing with the chronic pain? Unfortunately, he changed from a social drinker into an alcoholic. This was the start of his lifelong struggle with alcoholism. Roque's change from outgoing young man into a mentally unstable addict marked a turning point in his life. It wouldn't be long before he would become a malicious cult leader who used his own pain and alcoholism as an excuse to torment his followers. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to cults. Now, Vanessa, we know that later in life, as a vicious cult leader, Roque would get drunk and torture and mutilate his followers. Both Roque and the women who worshipped him would blame Roque's drinking for his violence. Is there any chance that if Roque had not become an alcoholic in the early 70s, that he wouldn't have spent the next decade violently abusing people around him? There's a common misconception that alcohol makes people violent and transforms them into abusers. But this is false. While alcohol can certainly loosen inhibitions, it can't make someone do anything they weren't already willing to do. Many abusers find alcohol to be a very convenient scapegoat for their violence. Yet a recent study has shown that alcohol isn't what determines whether a partner is abusive. But if alcohol doesn't make people violent, then what does? Well, a UBC study of 700 U.S. psychiatric patients and 870 students revealed that it's the presence of psychopathic traits, not alcohol, that predicts whether a partner will be violent. So there's no connection to alcohol at all? Well, the only real connection is that people with psychopathic tendencies are more likely to drink heavily. People like Roque Terrio. Right. Roque's narcissistic tendencies would have made him more likely to be an alcoholic for sure. Many psychologists have noticed a strong link between alcoholism and narcissism. One study by psychology professors Kathleen Voss and Roy Baumeister even describes narcissism as a form of addiction, just like alcohol. So while alcoholics are addicted to alcohol, narcissists are addicted to attention and approval. Right, and it seems like Roque was addicted to both. By the spring of 1976, Roque's life was a mess. He was out of the council. 
Francine took a job as a waitress to support the family as his wood carving business was failing. But then a new woman entered his life. On February 13, 1976, Roque met 24-year-old Giselle at a dance party at a Holiday Inn. He was supposedly there to sell his beer mugs, but he was really there to pick up women. Roque invited Giselle back into his hotel room. Giselle liked Roque's charisma and evident self-confidence. She wasn't willing to sleep with him that night, but she gave him her number. It wasn't long before Roque charmed Giselle into becoming his girlfriend. He drew Giselle in with a story of woe. Roe claimed he was dying of cancer and his wife was cheating on him. Just like the stories he told of his childhood, and this was all patently untrue, of course. Roke had chronic pain, but he wasn't dying. And Roke was the one running around with other women. But Roke was making very good use of that technique we discussed before, victim playing. He used his tale of misery to convince Giselle to date a married man. And he wasn't married for long. Roke soon divorced Francine. By the summer of 1976, Giselle had quit her job to be with Roque. They traveled around Quebec province together selling Roque's hand-carved mugs. They camped out together in a tent, and it all seemed very romantic. But one thing worried Giselle. Roque had a drinking problem. He once drank so much that he fell unconscious, and Giselle took him to the hospital in an ambulance. Roque's attempts to self-medicate his stomach pain with alcohol were clearly taking a dangerous toll on him. But Roque made no effort to stop his drinking. By the fall of 1976, Roque had talked Giselle into renting an apartment in his hometown of Thetford Mines. On the weekends, Roque stayed with Giselle. He openly brought his sons, seven-year-old Roque Jr. and five-year-old Francois, to visit on the weekends as well. Giselle was enjoying her whirlwind romance with Roque. But by the winter of 1976, Giselle also began to notice some disturbing changes in Roque's personality. He became obsessed with religion and was convinced he understood the Bible better than the Catholic Church. It's not surprising that Roque would turn to religion. People suffering from chronic pain tend to be more spiritual than the general population. For example, folk singer Cat Stevens became much more spiritual and interested in religion after contracting tuberculosis. But while some people use spirituality as a positive coping mechanism, others use it in a negative way. But how could spirituality make a chronic pain sufferer worse off than they already were? Well, it all depends on whether they use positive or negative coping mechanisms. Examples of negative spiritual coping mechanisms include getting angry at God or feeling like God has abandoned you. These feelings can leave a sufferer worse off than they were before. In the later half of 1976, Roque began using the Bible to prove that he was superior to other people. Instead of helping him, religion reinforced Roque's narcissistic tendencies. It gets worse. Giselle remembers Roque obsessing over sections of the Bible that demand women be obedient to men. Mm -hmm. Remember how Roque wanted to control how his wife Francine dressed? Hmm. This is more disturbing evidence of Roque's increasing need to control the women in his life. But in the early months of 1977, Roque would reach a final turning point and change from a relatively ordinary, if self-absorbed man into a notorious and brutal cult leader. And it all started when Roque found a new religion. In January or February of 1977, the Seventh-day Adventist Church decided to look for converts in Thetford Mines. Seventh-day Adventism grew out of an 1800s religious doomsday movement founded by William Miller. 
Miller convinced his followers that the second coming of Christ would occur on October 22, 1844, and thousands of followers sold everything they owned in anticipation of Jesus' arrival. When the date passed with no Jesus in sight, many followers abandoned Miller. But one of Miller's followers became convinced Miller had been right on the date, but wrong on the location. Instead of cleansing the earth, Jesus had cleansed a heavenly sanctuary instead. These followers became the Seventh-day Adventists, and they still believe that the second coming of Christ is imminent. And in the opening months of 1977, the Seventh-day Adventist Church decided to look for new converts among the Catholics living in Thetford Mines. Roke attended the first Seventh-day Adventist recruitment session. He found himself attracted to the ideas of Seventh-day Adventism and came to every subsequent session. He liked the idea of converting to a different religion and thumbing his nose at his Catholic father and the White Berets. He was also attracted to the possibility of an imminent apocalypse, an idea he'd soon co-opt for himself. Roke asked the Seventh-day Adventist to baptize him. At first, the change in religion seemed to be beneficial to Roke's mental health. In accordance with Seventh-day Adventist beliefs, he stopped smoking and drinking. He began eating a healthy vegetarian diet. He soon convinced Giselle to convert to Seventh-day Adventism as well. But in reality, Roke was just using religion to feed his narcissism. He liked to play the victim and force the other Seventh-day Adventist converts to listen to tragic stories about his life. Roke's pastor, Pierre Zita, was especially concerned by his narcissistic behavior. But even Pastor Zita felt compelled to help Roke. Since Roke was unemployed, Zita arranged for Roke to sell Seventh-day Adventist pamphlets. And due to his intelligence, charisma, and manipulative tendencies, Roke quickly proved himself to be a top salesman. He could convince almost anyone to buy the Seventh-day Adventist pamphlets. Pastor Zita was so impressed, he also arranged for Roke to start promoting a Seventh-day Adventist program aimed at helping smokers quit. Roke was such an expert salesperson that he was often able to sell both the Seventh-day Adventist literature and the non-smoking program simultaneously. Soon, high-ranking Seventh-day Adventist members were heaping praise on Roke for his innovative marketing strategies. For a narcissist like Roke, things were looking pretty good. He suddenly had what he wanted out of life, a position of respect, constant praise, and a job that let him meet new people and persuade them to follow his religion. But by the summer of 1977, just a few weeks after Roke had started selling the anti-smoking program, this already wasn't enough for Roke. Why should these young people Roke one over follow Pastor Zita when they could be following him? He wanted more power, more praise, and more control. He didn't want to simply convert young men and women to Seventh-day Adventism and leave them in the hands of Pastor Zita. He wanted to lead them himself. The summer of 1977 was when Roke would meet his first followers. Among them would be 21-year-old Solange Boylard, a bright and rebellious young woman who had become one of Roke's many wives before she met a gruesome fate at Roke's hands. Next week, we will uncover why Solange Boylard and many others followed Roke Terrio into the wilderness in July of 1978. We'll learn why the followers Roke christened the Ant Hill Kids stayed with him for over a decade. What compelled the Ant Hill Kids to stay loyal to Roke, no matter what price they paid for that loyalty? We'll discover why Roke's followers sacrificed everything for their cult leader, their children, their limbs, and their very lives.
Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Monday as we continue delving into the twisted psychology behind Roque Terrio and the Ant Hill Kids. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein, Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Jeanette Manning and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.